So, Asha, Trump has finally been indicted by the United States Department of Justice, but he's <laughs> indicted in Florida. Is that good news for Trump? It's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Wow, Asha. I knew we knew this day was going to come, but it's kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. I really like, I feel like dancing. Oh my gosh. Okay. Like, like I just feel like we need to like, add, like, I know that there's a still a long way to go, but I don't know. Maybe the inner cheerleader in me, like I just, I have a lot of energy that I need to get out. You were a cheerleader, right? I was of totally course. a cheerleader in high school. Um, and is anyone surprised? I, I, that is like the least surprising news in this podcast. Less surprising than anything <laughs> we're going to discuss with Donald Trump. Um, because I'm not the best dance partner, we have brought in Brian Greer, who you may know as Secrets and Laws on Twitter. Uh, he is somebody I turn to all the time when I have questions about topics like this. Just a really smart dude. He was associate general counsel at the CIA, so handled a lot of national security cases. And he's going to join us today. What a perfect time to have our first guest on this on this podcast. This is a big. It's a big night, Brian. Thank you, thank you for having me. I, and I've sometimes been accused by my friends of not having any emotions, so I think this will be a good counter to Asha's cheerleader. <laughs> Are you like Lieutenant Commander Data and, you're, and maybe Asha's Counselor Troy? <laughs> kind of. I'd like um, to think that, but I've been accused of okay. that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, look, let's get right to it. Okay. Can we can we like start from the beginning? Because full disclosure, people, I've been offline pretty much until I just got back on um, for this emergency podcast. So... I know generally that Trump has been indicted, but we need to catch up. Okay. Like how many counts? Seven counts from what I understand. That's what's what's been what's been reported. That's what's been reported. Yes. He's been notified or his lawyers have been notified that he's been indicted. This is sort of similar to the New York situation where he's been notified that he's been there is an indictment involving um, seven charges, uh, but we won't know exactly what they are until he appears for the arraignment in Florida. And they're all coming out of Florida. Is this right? So far, that's what we know. I mean, in other words, Jim Trusty went on CNN and, and, you know, said that they received a summons for an arraignment in Tuesday. I should note this was, so this is, it's almost 11 o'clock Eastern uh, on the day, on Indictment day on uh, Thursday, the 8th of June. Um, but what, what we know is it, so far is that there's an indictment in Florida. There could be a, an indictment to follow um, in D.C., for example, but there's no reason at this point to believe that that's the case. And we've been told seven counts uh, and you know, seven counts alone 
says some things, if that's true, in other words, if that is the an accurate number, I, I think Brian already had a lot of thoughts about what he thought that meant. Uh, and you want to just say at a kind of a high level what, what that might mean? Yeah, I mean, if you sort of count up all the obstruction-related charges that Trusty listed on CNN, that comes to, I think, four. And so that leaves maybe three other charges that wouldn't be potentially espionage act charges. It could be a small number, but it could be a single charge. We still don't know. But that to me, just in general, and we can dissect it all, suggests that from for the espionage act charges, they chose a very simple route. They said, let's not charge them with 10 or 15 or 20 documents like they probably could have. Let's just keep that part of the case simple, which to me just says, just suggests like they just want to knock out. They don't care if they get 15, 20 charges that can add up a sentence. They just want a conviction under the espionage act. And that could make this case easier, especially if you have a potentially hostile judge in Florida. And Brian, I'm sorry, can I interrupt real quick? When you say um, instead of 15 and 20 charges, like, is it the, the idea that each document is one count? Is that what you're suggesting? So that if they have one Espionage Act charge, that would be based on one document. Based on how they've charged in the past, I, yes, I believe that's how they would charge it. I suppose it's possible they could do it a little differently, but I don't really see an advantage doing it that way, given that they could charge them individually. If they'd brought a conspiracy charge under the Espionage Act, that might be a little different than you could maybe um, fuzz it up a little bit. But I would expect, we'll find out, that it they're each charge, there's one charge for that's each document. interesting. And you think that there's only one, There, there's three or fewer charges for espionage. I mean, this is going on Jim Trusty, <laughs> but based on what he said and just deducting, it seems like it's it's four or fewer, three or fewer. But that's really, I mean, I think that's an important point to underscore because just based on our earlier conversation last week, uh, which we may or may not release or may have already been released. I'm not really sure <laughs> if it's if it's OBE at this point. But you talked about how, you know, you expected there to be 10 to 15 documents or something like that. And you, in other words, you, you thought there would be more charges. So in that regard, it's all, like if you are correct, they basically distilled the classified documents piece to some very discreet one to three documents that they believe they are willing to disclose in order to prosecute this. Um, and it, I mean, in, in other words, that's going to be like the, the basis of that charge. For sure. And I think the, the question is why, right? Which we'll eventually we'll find out, although maybe we won't. But, you know, one theory is we've talked about the search for the Goldilocks documents, right? Like these perfect documents that are, not too sensitive that they can't be disclosed, but not too boring. Uh, maybe they can only find a few of those. I think that's unlikely, but it's something that should be thought of. Um, another theory is they just want to tell their story. They're going to want to show motive. So maybe these are the best documents for showing a story, showing what Trump's motive was. Or I think people downplayed the, the difficulty of this case from you have to show that Trump in, personally knew that it, those documents were there. And he might have generally known that documents were there, but you you would, as a prosecutor, you probably want to show he knew a specific document was there, right? So these may just be ones that they can tie to him personally, probably because they were in his office or in his desk 
more specifically. So I think one of those three, probably one of the latter two, might be why they zeroed in on these three. And then, again, I think we'll talk more about just it makes the case much simpler, and that just makes it much easier. No, as I said, that's an important point. Uh, prosecutors often have, uh, there's a disagreement amongst prosecutors. It's a different style of, do you throw the kitchen sink at someone? And th- and that's not an invalid way of proceeding. If, for example, in the Manafort case, uh, Andrew Weissman and his team threw everything possible at Paul Manafort in two separate indictments. And the idea is, you, even if you don't get a conviction on everything, you get you throw so much at him, it's very hard to explain away. Um, that never was my approach to prosecutor. My approach, which, and I'm not saying one is right or wrong, it's just a different style, was to have very narrow cases that were streamlined and told a simple story. Um, and had my strongest counts and just got convictions on those because it's sentencing the judge can consider all of it anyway. Um, but there are advantages and disadvantages to both. But, you know, one example of a document that might be included might be the one he described on that tape, right? There was that, there was that news that came out this past week about a, a, a conversation he had about an attack on Iran. Maybe that's the, one of the documents and maybe another one, like you said, maybe, maybe these are all documents that he talked about at some point. Like, for example, maybe they have evidence that he discussed the love letters with people. Uh, the, from Kim Jong Un, and so one, well, a love letter is one doc. The attack at Iran is another doc. There's maybe a third doc that we don't know anything about, and they just they're like, why do we need 15 documents? We got three documents that he we know we can prove that he had, and maybe let's just roll with those. Yeah, exactly. I, the map that was, I think there was reporting once that he was maybe showing a classified map or or, or like probably overhead imagery um, to someone. That's an intriguing thing to think about because that's sort of an easy document to put in front of a jury without and you might be able to get away with not disclosing that to the public but that's another one but yeah it, you know the the indictment will be fascinating it'll be fascinating to see how many details they put in it so we can try to put together like what's the story they're going to tell at trial can we pause for one second and just talk about how this entire situation is so self-created and it was completely avoidable. It's so freaking dumb. Like sometimes I like think about it and I'm like, this is like the dumbest, like it's dumb. He had every chance. Like this is someone who I think, and Renata, you can speak to this, right? Like compared to the universe of potential defendants out there, got every opportunity in the book to avoid this. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. Uh, the, the few appearances that I've had uh, this evening of talking about this, I've often been with these Trumpster uh, people. And that's been a point that I've really raised, which is on day one, actually the government had very little evidence against Donald Trump because he had an amazing defense baked in on day one, which is I was the, I'm the, I was the president of the United States up till a few minutes ago. I didn't pay it. Yeah, I don't pay attention to what documents are going, what boxes. Like, come on, there's a whole army of people moving boxes and putting things around. It's disorganized. I don't know whether what docs are in the what boxes. I, I can't possibly have willfully retained anything because I don't even know what's in them. Amazing defense. Like, you don't need to be a, a, a brilliant lawyer to see why that would be a great defense for somebody defending themselves against, let's say, a willful retention of classified of the national security information. But he ended up pissing that away. How? Well, the, ironically, because the Justice Department and before that, NARA 
treated him with kid gloves. They sent him letters, emails, like, please give the documents back. We're writing to inquire about this. And, you know, if some prosecutor, if, 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 if he had hired a lawyer like me, I would have been like, we got to give this stuff back. Like, let's immediately just, you know, resolve the situation in exchange for immunity, active production immunity. We're going to give everything back. We're done. Okay. You, here's your stuff, right? That's what Mike Pence did. Mike Pence, they did a search. They found some stuff. Here you go. Uh, here's your stuff. No prosecution. And, and instead, not only did they write him those letters and communicate with them, they ended up, there was a grand jury subpoena that was issued. There was a visit by the Justice Department, by a major Justice Department official and the FBI to his, to Mar-a-Lago before there was a raid of search warrant execution, just visiting. And they're like, you know, making sure they get the stuff. And then they, they just said, look, just give us an attestation. We'll take your say so essentially that you return the stuff. All, after all of that, they still had evidence. The Justice Department had evidence that they didn't return anything. I mean, that that was literally, I, I, Bill Barr called it jerking around the Justice Department. I think that's one of the first times I was like, wow, that's absolutely put by Bill Barr. Uh, because that that I think that sums up how he got himself into this situation. For sure. So... What happens now? Well, there's going to be an arraignment on Tuesday. And the judge or typically in a typical case, and Brian can speak, you know, we've we often you guys often hear me talk about how criminal cases go. I handle a lot of criminal cases. I'll be meeting with the DOJ tomorrow uh, most of the day for one of my cases. But. Um, I don't handle a lot of national security cases. I had a case that turned out to be a national security case, but I didn't do a lot of that work. In fact, by the way, uh, when I was federal prosecutor, we used to tease the people in the national security section because they didn't actually try many cases or go to court much. They'd send subpoenas and, I don't know, write memos or something. Uh, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, we would tease them about it, but they certainly weren't going to court much. And, and Brian, there's 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 reasons why these cases are difficult to to have in court. And there are so often steps, for example, getting clearance for attorneys and so forth uh, that you have to that you have to do that then make that process longer. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those steps? Yeah. So let's pick up like after the arraignments happened and everything like that. So next things that would happen are the Trump attorneys will need to get cleared. I know some people might be saying they should never be cleared. They're not trustworthy. They will probably all be cleared absent some, you know, very troubling thing in their background. Um, DOJ believes people should be given their attorneys of choice absent some extenuating circumstances. That will probably be done relatively quickly, um, given the need to move forward quickly. Then the Classified Information Procedures Act will kick in, which is a statute that governs discovery of classified information. The judge, the parties will put forward a, what's called the SEPA Section 3 protective order in the case. And that's got to be entered and and agreed to by the judge before any of the classified discoveries pushed out. There will That will be the first sort of round of litigation over what it says, what the restrictions are, things like that. Once that's signed, then they'll start pushing over a bunch of discovery, and then all the litigation will start over the scope of discovery, what they might be withholding, and then eventually they'll start to be a lot of discovery about what the trial will look like. Yeah, and, and, there, and just to be clear... There's still, uh, you know, a long path between getting discovery out and trial. And I think one of the big questions on everyone's mind is, could this trial occur before the uh, election? And I'm going to put a marker down. I may be wrong, but this is I feel pretty strongly about this. 
I don't think that this case, that this trial is going to happen before the election until two things, unless two things are true at the same time. One is that Trump, the, that Trump draws a judge because judges are assigned randomly. Trump, Trump draws a judge that really wants to get this done before the election. Like she decides or he decides, I really think it's important for the American people to get this done. And I'm going to set this on a fast track. And two, Trump's attorneys don't pull out all the stops to get this done. Because I will just say, as somebody who, when I was a federal prosecutor, I had a guy take years to get to trial in secret. I did not realize at the time he was actually had figured out a way to escape from the facility he was in. So he'd been working on his method of escape. So he literally took a year. He delayed the case for years by rapidly firing and attorneys right before trial and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, you know, I've certainly seen it on the defense side. It's just not hard for a defense attorney to say a few months before trial, I'm not ready. I can't possibly try this case. Um, I'm not, I will, you know, you will, I will be constitutionally ineffective if I go forward. Uh, I'm not able to review the discovery, whatever the, the defense attorney can say, or if Trump fires his attorneys or whatever to buy time. If they have to not do that stuff in order for this to happen for the, before the election, because there's no way this case is getting tried in October or late September or something like that right before the election itself. It's, it's also not going to happen right around the time that the Manhattan trial is in, or what is it, February or March? So it's got to be in the summer, basically a year from now. I just think that's very, uh, very optimistic. Can we pause for a second and talk about, um, the fact that all these charges came out of Florida? And what that means and why. Don't you think that also impacts this question, Brian? Yeah, because almost certainly the judge who's going to be assigned to this case probably does not have, um, unless it's someone who's been on the FISA court before or maybe has been a national security prosecutor, they will not have experience in handling classified information. And that, I think, alone makes them go a little slower with this, just given the unfamiliarity. I just need I need the audience to understand this could be Judge Luce Cannon. Yeah, is it the right division though? Let's is all the- pledge that we're not going to contribute to the conspiracy theory of the assignment wheel Twitter that's about to come out <laughs> as soon as this case is assigned to a judge like we had before. Let let's not contribute to that. I I have to tell you if she gets it, I will lose my mind. <laughs> You will flip your S. Won't you? Won't you lose your mind? Yeah, but even there, like, that's a great example. Like, even the difference between Miami and, like, Fort Lauderdale, right? Like, I assume there's a a better skiff situation. Like, all these documents are going to have to be handed over to Trump's attorneys in a skiff. There's probably a better situation set up for that in Miami than even just Fort Lauderdale or further up or West Palm or wherever. Now, one question, interesting question is what maybe they just push all the discovery over in D.C. If Trump's attorneys are D.C., everybody's in D.C., they could still handle all the discovery there. That's a possibility. But um, they'll still have got to get everything down to the judge, like even just getting the documents down to the judge when the judge has to review them. Like that's a logistical challenge. Well, you also have to review things if you're a defense attorney, usually with the defendant. And that's always a challenge, too. So, like, everyone's in D.C. except the frickin' defendant who's down in Florida. So, I mean, there, there's got to be some, I mean, there's going to have to be some accommodation here that might be plausible that you could say, okay, well, we have a skiff in Mar-a-Lago or something along those lines. Typically, in a typical case, that wouldn't happen. They'd be like, okay, well, Marriott, you can get your continuance because you, you're going to have to go with your client down to a skiff you know, in some other location. 
And that brings up probably one of the first big fights we'll see play out in this case, which is, does Trump himself get access to the classified documents in discovery? I think almost certainly he would get access to the documents he's charged that he had in his possession. Um, I think that's a given. So he's already seen them. Exactly. I mean, that's why the Department of Justice isn't going to, there's no, yeah, they're not going to fight about it. They're going to push all those to him. Yeah. And then typically you would also not fight about anything they would have had access to as at, in their former office. Usually it's a low level GS 13 or something. Now it's, it's a president. I think that, I think the Justice Department probably won't much, put up much of a fight. Normally they would say large chunks of these materials are only going to the clear defense lawyers, not the defendant. I don't think they'll have that fight here. I think they'll just say, look, if Trump tweets out about the documents or says anything, he could be facing more charges and more likely he'd be violating the protective order, which will make the judge mad. And so I think they're just going to say, we're just confident that he's not, maybe not that he's going to do the right thing, but that we can be safe knowing that he may still have access to these documents. So one, one thing I'll just say, you know, you had asked Asha why Florida or why, what does this mean? I mean, one thing that this means is, you know, there, there were venue issues with DC and I'll just briefly say, just talk about that because I think people are familiar that crimes in this country have to be charged in the district that they're committed in. Um, and some of these crimes current committed were committed in Florida. I know, Brian, you, we've spoken previously about the fact that I think you've said when he left DC, he was still the, with the documents, he was still the president of the United States. And, and so, um, you know, the, 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 the documents weren't willfully retained and, you know, they were, they were properly in his possession until he was already in Florida. So there was good reason to bring an indictment in Florida. Some people speculated that there would also be an indictment in DC. I certainly was among them that I thought that was very possible uh, because you have an obstruction count obstructing a grand jury in DC. That turnout doesn't look like that's happened, at least based on what we know so far. One thing it means though is, you know, and, and this is interesting because there are a bunch of tools that the Justice Department could use and often uses to try to restrict access to classified materials in a, in, a, in these sorts of cases. They typically do those in front of judges in, let's say, D.C. that know these these kinds of cases well. But they have, I think they're questionable from a constitutional perspective because there's a tension between criminal defendants who, um, you know, for example, have a right to not only access the, the discovery, but also to confront witnesses facing them and so on. And the public, of course, having a right to, to know what's going on in a public trial um, versus the need to keep stuff secret. I, I think it seems to me like they're going to go the route, as you kind of hinted at, Brian, of just saying, you know what, we're just going to we're going to let the let the you know, let the stuff out and or, or make it on declassify it because otherwise th they would be raising questions about procedures that they they that ultimately might get. Uh, overturned in a case like this that they make use of all the time when they prosecute, you know, uh, spies and so forth. That's right. And there's this tool that they use in these cases called the silent witness rule, which basically means that they don't have to declassify documents like this. They just show them to the jury and describe them to the jury in generalities and have testimony about them in generalities, but the public never sees them. If If Trump were any other United States citizen, that would absolutely be used against him in a prosecution, but he's not. 
So I think that to me, the number of, I already was skeptical that they would try to use this rule for the reasons that you highlighted, that they they do have a right to an open trial and they do have a right to cross-examine witnesses. And you're just not certain that a court would uphold that in a case against the former president. Um, but I think the number of documents to me is is another tell that they're not going to use that rule. Because if they were using that rule, it'd be very easy to charge them with 10, 20, 30 documents because they're not going to have to be declassified to the public. So if that's your assumption going in, why not? charge them with 30 counts on the Espionage Act. The fact that they've chosen three or fewer documents, it appears to me, if that's true, suggests that they've they've chosen three, too, that they can just live with being declassified. Maybe not being happy about it, but they can live with and, it. And they have to, right? Like, if you're going to charge the former president with the Espionage Act and you're going to say this person... So, I mean, because you can't separate the fact that he was the former president. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I get that he's no longer in that office, that he's not technically authorized to have them. But I think that there is a sense that this person was the most powerful person in the United, in, in the world. Like, are we really going to, you know, get him for this? So they need to be able to convey to a jury and I think also the public that this was serious. Like, this is a big effing deal that he had this, that he had it in an unsecure location, that potentially he was making this available or, like, at least insecure, but, you know, maybe even uh, voluntarily disseminating it. I mean, don't you think that that's, that that's the bar here? Like, it's not just your ordinary person. Like you have to take into account that this was a former president. So you have to like be willing to show why this was so right. egregious that it warrants being prosecuted. And I think especially your point about it being for legitimacy to the public, right? Because if there's any closed aspect of the trial, he will scream to high Evans about it being a secret star chamber proceeding. And DOJ, I think smartly, it looks like they're not going to have any of that. They're just going to, go all out in terms of declassifying. We'll see, but that would be my prediction um, because I just think it's worth it for the perceived legitimacy of the trial. And to this point, like what you are saying, I just want to make sure that we're clear on this. You're saying that they're willing to have whatever, like in other words, this is kind of in this Goldilocks phase, right? Like this is serious shit. And they're going to allow the public to know what that serious shit is. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm still reading tea leaves, so I could be wrong. Let's stipulate that. This is just... I think you're right, but I'm just, I just want to kind of make clear what we're talking about. Yeah. And, you know, depending on the documents, there may still be some minimal redactions that they want to make to withhold sort of irrelevant but sensitive details that could be in there. But I think anything they're going to rely on to establish why this was so sensitive... They're, they're probably going to be willing to live with coming out. And then does that streamline a bunch of the stuff, I guess, is the question. Yeah, yeah. Well, one point about the diamond. Normally in a case, you would have a big fight between the intelligence community and the DOJ about how much how many details you put in the case. And we at the agencies would say, don't put that many because this case is probably going to plea out, right? So let's just fight another day. Here, I think we all mm-hmm. agree there's zero, zero chance of a plea so DOJ is probably just saying, let's just get it all out yeah. there now. I think they'll still probably pick a middle ground. Um, but then to your other question about the speed, that's where I think this is super advantageous of 
even on a narrow case, the classified discovery can be quite voluminous in these cases. And by just narrowing it to these three or less documents, maybe, that's going to be much, much easier to comply with their discovery obligations to get it all out to him. Maybe they have it ready to go. I kind of doubt it, but maybe um, that they could push it all out and move that that trial forward much quicker. Yeah, I'm sure that's part of the calculus is to you know make it so that you could have a trial quicker. I mean, I think uh, one possibility at the very least is that GOJ can say, we are willing and we're ready to go to trial on X date or Y date in these months so that this way they can at least say it's his option to, to do it later. If he wants to like, we'll get him to discovery, you know, quickly, we're going to do this process quickly enough and in a streamlined way. So he has the option to clear his name before trial if he wants to. Um, but I, I, so I do think that, 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 that may be part of it. I will say though, that I do think the selection of these documents is awfully important. I mean, if there is a potential misstep that the DOJ could make, I mean, one misstep would be to so, and so narrowly choose the, the universe of documents that you select documents that not everyone can agree are very serious. You know, to go to your point that you made, Asha, this is the president of the United States. I think they better be really serious documents. An Iranian attack plan, that sounds very serious. Nuclear secrets, that sounds serious. But if it's going to be his love letters with Kim Jong-un, I don't know. They must they better be pretty interesting love letters. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the sort of thing that might go both ways. So I do think that the choice of documents is going to be important. And by the way, that's not just a political judgment on my point. Uh, on my part, that's actually a judgment that I would make as a trial lawyer. And and here's what I mean. You know, indicting in the Southern District of Florida, you have to understand your jury pool. And uh, and this is something that, that prosecutors think about all the time. Uh, and defense attorneys do. If one of my, indi- my clients is indicted in the Circuit Court of Cook County, which is Chicago and there's a few other little t- uh, towns, it's a very different jury pool. It's a much more diverse jury pool. It's a much more pro-defendant jury pool than the Northern District of Illinois, which in- is one of the biggest districts in the country because it includes not only the whole city of Chicago, but all the suburbs, uh, which are uh, less diverse, let's just say, and more pro-prosecution, more pro, uh, less pro-defendant. Well, Southern District of Florida, not as pro, pro, you know, anti-Trump, let's say, or pro DOJ as District of DC. And I think you want to convince those jurors that there's something serious going on here to reduce your chances of a single holdout who's like, you know, this is BS. Um, they got Trump on keeping his love letters from Jim, Tim Jong-un. Those are personal letters. Those aren't classified. One point I think it's worth making is some listeners may be disappointed in the number small number of espionage act charges thinking he's getting away with you know the 300 plus that he's not being charged with i would caution against that one i certainly think at a trial when we're hearing about obstruction and all those obstructive acts you will hear a lot from doj about the volume and then even more so and renato i'm sure you've had experience with this at sentencing right like if he's convicted then it moves to the sentencing phase you're going to hear a ton from the Department of Justice about how many other documents he had there as some sort of aggregating factor. Defense lawyers would then argue that make all, maybe you can preview the arguments they'll make about why those shouldn't be taken into account, but that'll be a big fight at sentencing is how much should those other documents be taken into account. Right. One of the features of our sentencing system, federal sentencing system, is regardless of the charges, you can essentially be... Sentencing, the judge has to take everything into account. And for federal sentencing guideline purposes, there are some restrictions on that. But if it's part of the same course of conduct or same plan 
um, than a common plan, the, the judge can take that into account. So whether you charge him and can, you could charge him, let's say on a hundred counts, he gets acquitted on 99, convicted on one. Uh, the judge could consider by a preponderance of the evidence, all of them. Um, and this sort of stuff happened all the time. Uh, the Justice Department, you know, would, would, would pick us. And I did this. I was saying, I was the guy with the narrow indictment. Like, I'll just get you on this one little piece that I got it really strong indictment, uh, strong, uh, evidence on. And then I'll just wrap in all the rest of the stuff at sentencing. And under, uh, a statute 30, 18 USC 3553A, the, the the judge is required to consider the nature and circumstances of the offense, which is just everything. So, of course, the judge is going to consider all that. The other thing people have to understand, too, is for that reason, prosecutors in the United States think of it. I mean, there was a saying in my office that some people said, one defendant, one count, which means you can you, you die a person with 15 counts. You get a, a conviction on one. That's it. You got you're good. You're good as gold, because unless you're. You have like a low statutory maximum. Uh, you're you're going to be fine, and you're going to get the sentence you you want to get as a prosecutor anyway. Anyway, you could say, by the way, I mean, I think a lot of people, and I think, and I have I have some sympathy to this argument. It's say that that system is unfair. Ironically, it's it's done in part to take power away from prosecutors because if the prosecutor can control the sentence by determining by the number of charges that they bring then they gives them a ton of power in plea negotiations. Whereas in the federal system, regardless of what the prosecutors do, the judge is going to make whatever determination in sentencing anyway. So Trump is in trouble. Um, I think it's fair to say that he, you know, he is um, facing, well, although we're talking about a, a small number of counts, one of those counts could be a conspiracy count, by the way, which could encompass a whole range of activity. But, uh, uh, but I have to say one thing that I do, well, I, I think is worth or, uh, saying, and I'm, I'm curious if you agree, I'm sure you're going to agree with me on this, Hosh. I don't think there's any disagreement, but I think it's important to point to make is this case kind of, to me, stands alone from all of his other problems. In that, I mean, the Manhattan DA case, there's an element of BS to that whole indictment. I'm sorry. Uh, but that, it's like the lowest level felony. He's not going to get prison time based on everybody I talk to who practices a lot in Manhattan, former assistant Manhattan DAs. And it's just, it's like, it's got a lot of problems with it. There's a Georgia case, state case. There seems, it's, there, there, may, there may be something to that. The January 6th, there's all sorts of challenges there. But this case is like, very easy to prove, very straightforward, very serious charges. People have done similar things to go to prison for a long time. Like when I look at, at uh, press releases and national security section, boy, there's some people, people who are former defense contractors keeping some docs at their house and going to prison for years. Uh, they, they weren't obstructing justice. They didn't get a, a bunch of uh, engraved invitations to give the docs back and they went to prison for a while. So this seems to me like it's just, uh, this is the most important case he's facing by country. Mile. Yeah, to me, I feel like this is very different in a couple of respects. So first, like, this involves the national security of the United States, right? I mean, January 6th did also, like, in other words, like, they, you know, people attacked the Capitol, but it was domestic, right? Like, this is about the secrets that we collect, we hold in order to protect the country. And I think that there's a lot of people who just out of 
basic level understand that. In other words, there's a certain public resonance to, I mean, just, you know, when you see the po- the popular cases where people have disclosed classified information, like you understand that that has, um, you know, a, a major effect on all of us, right? Like it, it there's, there's an impact. Um, I also think that this is like, there's a straightforwardness to it in the sense that this is Trump. Like there's a way in which January 6th, you know, there's like so many moving parts and there's like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and like, you know, did, did Trump really cause that? We don't really know. Like this is Trump. He had the documents. He didn't hand them over. Like there's not that much to really argue with. And so I do think that there, that this stands alone. I, I wrote a Substack post it was called Mindhunter. And it was like kind of looking at the pattern of activity, like the election crimes and how he's and financial crimes. And this is kind of an outlier in some ways that this it doesn't fit the pattern, but it's also like almost very uh, distilled in a way of like being both his complete responsibility and you completely see the impact of it uh, at a visceral level. Yeah, I, I had written a column in Politico some time ago when this story first broke that compared this to a, a narcotics case. And, and I think that's, to me, that that is really what makes this the this so straightforward to prove. In other words, there's a real the fundamental divide in criminal law between white-collar crimes, which is usually what Trump is involved in, where it's like, you know, thought crimes of a sort. I don't think thought crimes, but it's like crimes that focus on state of mind. In other words, you know, for certain types of crimes, let's say a drug crime, the, the question is just, were you the guy who did it? Okay. Are those, is that your meth in the, in the trunk? Uh, are you the guy at the bank with the, with the mask and the gun? Like there's never a defense like, well, I didn't intend to rob the bank. I just happened to have the gun and a mask on in the bank with a note saying, give me your money. Like no one ever, there's no defense like that, right? Either you're the guy at the bank or not. Either you're the one with the drugs or not. It, you're, you're the guy with all the cocaine. So those cases are all about identity, but the, the white collar cases are different. They, when you start moving into being a white collar prosecutor, it was like a whole new ball game for me when I went in and focused on that because it's all about proving intent to defraud, proving, you know, corrupt intent for obstruction, whatever it might be. It's all about proving what's in the, the head of the defendant, which can be challenged. We all know this guy's the CEO of a company. We all know that he was the one who was, uh, you know, whatever you know, d- doing this activity, uh, you know, ma- get, making loans or whatever it was. The question is, what did he intend when he signed these documents and so forth? This Trump case is very much in the first category. Like, you got tr- you got classified documents in your trunk. Like, it is what it is. Like, it, you, that's it. Like, it's there's no, like, thought thought process to it. So, yes, I agree. Like, they have to show he actually knew he had him there. And that may be why we have a narrow number of accounts. But, like, come on. Like, I mean, at a certain point, like, I, I just don't think there's serious question here that he knew he had the docs. And so I, I, that's why I think this is straightforward. Like you say, he's just he's a dumbass. And I think that's. That's the case. You just gave me a very bad flashback to in, in Judge Cannon's ruling. When, remember when she said something about this isn't like a case where someone had a bunch of cocaine, you know, lying about or something like that. It kind of <laughs> is. Like, kind of I mean, is. Yeah. Like, it's like, like, yeah. It, it actually, look at the picture. It is. <laughs> this actually makes me think of what you said about SIPA, 
um, so like if this were to be assigned to loose cannon, at least under SEPA, some of these, like if she were to rule in favor of Trump on like some of these like early preliminary issues, those can be appealed immediately. Exactly. That's one of the best things about SEPA for the government is you can take immediate interlocutory appeal to the Court of Appeals for any adverse ruling, which another in, in, in any other criminal trial you don't get, right? You just got to wait till the end of the trial. By then it's basically too late. You have to just sort of deal with the trial court. Here they could go up to the 11th Circuit. They do have to have an give an expedited appeal by statute, but they're going to do whatever they want still. There's no penalty for the court of appeals. So that's, to Renato's point about the timing of this, that's what I was going to say earlier is it just takes one of those and then there's no way this is happening before the election because the 11th Circuit would, even on an expedited basis, would take probably a few months to resolve it. So speaking about timing, one thing that I, I'm going to cop to getting completely wrong here is... I was I had Twitter and also and when we were trying we recorded a version of this earlier in the week I, I was absolutely convinced this this indictment was not going to happen this week and the reason I was super convinced about that is that they were putting witnesses in the grand jury this week um, in Florida there was a Trump spokesman who's like came out there and said I testified today in the grand jury and there Mark Meadows reportedly testified earlier this week as well. And in terms of what that means, I mean, I think the only takeaway I could get from that, it's very unusual circumstance, by the way, to have be putting witnesses in the grand jury like that are hostile, like the Trump spokesman who's like tweeting out about how he still is true to Trump and this and that, um, then turn around and indict the same day or the same same week. But I think what happened there, and in that case, they probably were lock, I'll call locking that guy out. In other words, I used to do this with the girlfriends of the, of the bank robbers and so forth. Like, uh, you know, let's just put them in the grand jury, see what they're going to say and just get lock in their testimony. So whatever lie, they don't have more time to come up with different lies. Like, let's just get the, whatever the lies are and just get them locked in. So that, that may have been what was happening with the spokesman. Just lock out all these people like, Hey, were you, the, did he wave his hands in front of you and say it's all declassified or, you know, whatever. And then as to Meadows, maybe his his testimony is more about January 6th and, and so on. In other words, they may have tied up a loose end or two with him there, but a lot of maybe there, there's still a January 6th investigation that apparently is ongoing. And maybe they made the decision. I mean, maybe what the, one thing this says is they're not sure what if they have enough to indict or to wrap up on January 6th, but they did not want to delay the Mar-a-Lago case because they got the goods there. And they wanted to at least give him the opportunity to get this thing uh, to trial before the election if he really wanted to do it. Those are all very good theories to me. Uh, another thing I think, right, there could be witnesses who they've interviewed, the FBI's interviewed, right? But it's still better to have a transcript of what they said as opposed to the FBI write-up of that. So. That that may be another thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, having the grand jury tra- the other thing about the grand jury transcript, you can always be like, you took an oath to tell the truth, the same oath you took here today. You do all this stuff on cross examination. Yeah. It sounds much better than just like, yeah, you talked yeah. to these FBI agents and well, they wrote the report wrong and you know, this and that. The one thing, if we have time, we haven't really talked about is it does look like there's this witness tampering charge in Mm -hmm. the indictment. Again, just based on what trustee said, that's probably, other than the number of charges, I think the biggest surprise. Walt Nada, maybe? Yeah, not a surprise that Trump would try to tamper with a witness, but just that DOJ has the goods on that. 
Yeah, I think that Walt Nauta guy maybe flipped something along those lines. That'd be my su- suspicion there. We'll we'll have to see. Uh, obviously, my I'm not 100. percent I can't be 100 percent sure about anything like that. But can we quickly talk about the reporting that Nauta's lawyer accused Jay Bratt of prosecutorial misconduct? Yeah. So there's a report I think from NBC that. Jay Brett met with Nauta's lawyer and was encouraging him. He's the he's the head of the counterintelligence section, am I right? Yes, he's the chief of the counterintelligence section. He was, I, th- I think, trying to basically encourage the lawyer to get Nauta to cooperate. And... I guess at some point said something to the effect of, you know, I know that you want to do the right thing. And then at some point referenced the fact that this lawyer had an application in the works to become a judge. Oh, I see. So the suggestion is that Biden will appoint you to be a judge. They're they're claiming that he is intimating that Biden would appoint him to be a judge if he... Did X Y Z right? Like yeah. that that the, his 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 application would be viewed more favorably if oh, he were to get his client to cooperate, etc. So this has been alleged by, um, I guess, this lawyer or whatever. Does he still represent Nada? He does. So yeah the the innocent explanation it sounds like that that was in the like you know pre interview chit chat you might have. Of hey, what's going on? Hey, I saw that you applied for this judgeship as the chit chat. I'm not saying that's the case, but that's that's one. I think there was some suggestion in the story it could have been that, and I think it was in the context again, according to the story, that look, I I didn't take you for a Trump guy, <laughs> in sort of the same vein to the lawyer. Jay Bratt was saying this to the lawyer, um, so you could see Jay just trying to say this just seems not like you, but it still seems inappropriate. I think even in the innocent, even in the innocent version, it's not a good look. Yeah. I mean, it's not a great look. Like it's, it's a very inelegant comment to make in that whole series of, you know, and I think the, the big thing to drive home is Jay Brad has zero influence. I think as far as I am aware in the select, like who gets to be a judge. Yeah, this is for a D.C. Superior Court position, and yeah, that's not something a DOJ prosecutor had any say in. I mean, one thing I'll just say is it definitely underscores how careful you have to be as a prosecutor. I mean, one thing that I learned, I remember getting, I had a lot of arrows flung away when I was federal prosecutor. I had some crazy stories I could tell about that. And one one thing I was told at a certain point is like you're in the big leagues. Like if the the fact that people are trying to take you down and do this and then like pick apart every word you say, it's because you're handling cases that matter, and that's just the reality here. Uh, Jay, I don't know him. I, you know, nice guy. I'm sure he's a great guy. But like when you're handling a case like this, I mean, I thought I was handling important cases. They're nothing compared to this. Like this is they're like speck of dust compared to this case. Like if you're handling a case like this, you have to be so careful about what you say and what you do and cross every T and dot every I. It's just very uh, careless. Yeah, but, but the important detail in that story is whatever perceived coercion there was didn't work because Nauta still did not cooperate after that one bit. So at least maybe he has since then, but at least at that point in time, nothing changed. So if you're, you know, to bring a real misconduct charge, right, you'd have to show some sort of adverse 
impact to the defendant. And there clearly was none on Trump. So I, it's not going to go anywhere. They'll obviously make some noise about it. I think at most to like either the DOJ inspector general or the more likely office of professional responsibility in DOJ might look at it. Maybe Brat could be recused from the case, but I, nothing more I think would come of it. Well, all right. I, I think we've talked enough about this. So uh, <laughs> before we go, uh, before we go, um, I have to, I have to say, um, I, this in some ways seems like a culmination of a long journey of sorts. I know we had an indictment in Manhattan. I kind of didn't make my feelings about it. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, uh, guarded about my feelings about it a few minutes ago. Um, but I think, you know, Asha, you and I have been talking for many years about the travails of Donald Trump, uh, and, uh, from the time he fired Jim Comey, really, um, and the, which was what six years ago now, or something like that. Um, this is kind of a, a significant moment. I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Renato, because I was thinking. I feel like there's like many people, maybe not everyone, kind of remember where they were and how they felt when Donald Trump got elected president. I personally mm-hmm. had hosted a Hillary party <laughs> at my house. <laughs> um, oh my! Yeah, and we, I was at the Tammy Duckworth vic- victory party on election night. I sped home because I was like, I-, I can't hear what's going on, but it doesn't look good. I need to get. I, everyone's celebrating here. I need to get home so I can hear what's actually happening. I I had gone that day in my pantsuit with my children, who. I mean, how old were they at the time? 2016, uh, like 10 and eight, we'd gone and I, you know, we went and, and voted and, and I actually kept them up for this like party or whatever. And then like around nine 30, I sent them to bed and then kind of around nine 45, like all my mom friends left, um, because things were not looking good. And then I spent the rest of the night in fetal position, finishing like, I don't know, a bottle or two of wine. Um, and, uh, you know, it, like I, I actually have a picture of my cat like on my shoulder and me like not in a good place. We knew like that there is some way in which you knew at a fundamental level that, that, that this was, it was going to all end in this way, right? Like, I I remember thinking, like, he's got to be impeached. Like, the, the something's going to happen because someone like this, and it wasn't really almost about him. It was really about, you knew kind of his character and you were like, if our system works, this is, has to be the logical conclusion at some point, right? Because of what we know about him. And I feel like we're there in a weird way. Um, you are way more, have a way more better prognosticator than I am. I knew this in 2016. I knew this in 2016. I knew that there was some version of this that was, that we were going to be, <laughs> like, I didn't know we were going to be on a podcast with Brian Greer talking about this, but <laughs> I knew that this was going to happen. 
Wow. I, I have to say, I, I remember I stayed up till God knows when I was so, I mean, I stayed up till very late at night when he gave his speech and Hillary conceded and this and that. And, and I was shocked and floored the same way you were, but I didn't know how it was going to end. I, I thought to myself, maybe part all the, what you said was an act to try to get into office. I was like, this is crazy. I don't know what it's going to, what's going to happen. But I, I was, I was more agnostic about it. I, I certainly had strong views once he the firing of Comey and all of that um, happened. And, and that's when I started speaking out about various things. But um, I have to say, um, I, there was a part of me that doubted as to whether or not, you know, at a certain point, at least right after the Mueller investigation, everything, whether there would be um, a, a reckoning in federal criminal court for Donald Trump. Um, I, the Mar-a-Lago thing, I have to say, is a very perfect storm. And, and I think to go back to the point you made earlier, it really is sort of Trump, you know, Trump buried himself here. And um, yeah, it's a very fitting end to the Trump story if that's what it ends up being. Maybe it's not, maybe he gets elected again. I don't know. Brian, what are your take on all this? Were you in were you in CIA during all of this time? Yeah. Can I add two, I'll add two things to this real quick. Um, one is I would argue a bunch of CIA lawyers were the first people to know that Trump was going to get elected Whoa. actually before election night. And I'll tell you how. Two weeks before, whatever it was, James Comey came to speak in front of the CIA Office of General Counsel. Gave a great, he's a great speaker, you know, put us like different guy back then, very dynamic speaker, gave a great speech. And at the very end, someone asked him, can you give us an example of like an ethical decision you struggled with in your life? And he got very quiet and he said, well, I'm struggling, I've been struggling with one right now. Um, and he went on to talk about how hard it was. And he said, you know, I ultimately decided it was just important to do the right thing. Doing the right thing is always the right answer. And then he, and he said, and I'll tell you about it. And he turned to one of his aides and his aide was like this, like, don't do it. Cause he was seeing if it was out yet. And what was, ha what had happened that day was they released the letter saying that they were reopening the Clinton investigation. And he was on the tip of his lips telling us about that. And then he stopped. But we all knew, like, it was clear from everything he said that he was about to make a bombshell announcement that was going to totally upend the election. And then as soon as we got out, they had to get out of our secure facility and started checking our phones. And then like an hour later, all the news came out. So we all kind of knew before everyone else that this was all <laughs> the bottom was about to drop out. But But then just reflecting back too, I thought of, not election day, right? But I think his first day in office. And so what did he do as his first act? He came to the CIA headquarters on a Saturday, which was a little odd, and gave that speech in front of the CIA wall uh, of stars where they, where they have a star for every fallen sea officer. And as you may recall, he gave a speech that was completely disrespectful to the memory of all those people. That's a very solemn place for anyone at the CIA or in the government. And he gave a totally political speech that had a bunch of lies and a bunch of politics and just showed complete disregard for their memory. And then I think you would argue to the national security apparatus of the United States. And so to me, this is a little poetic that it's come full circle with that, that he started his administration by showing complete disregard for the national security establishment and, and that this is how it ends. On that note, I, I think it ends. Um, we'll see you next week. Thank you.